1: Welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk computing, technology, quantum computing, uh, all of the stuff that uh, you want to be thinking about uh, for an hour on a Wednesday night. Um, We're excited to be with you. uh, Tonight, uh, on the desk, we have uh, a good bunch of human beings. We have Laura Summers. How are you?
0: Hey there. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you.
1: Have you had a a good week in tech, Uh, middling?
0: Oh, you know, lots of video calls and occasionally swearing at my Bluetooth headphones.
1: Ah. Are, are they are they working well or not so well or oh,
0: they just um they like to disconnect and i've had i've had some problems it's yeah bluetooth we could we could go into a big rabbit hole about the uh problems of bluetooth connections and actually related to an you know, covid tracking up
1: ah we might go into that
0: mm-hmm.
1: um also dan Morganti, how are you dan yeah very well how are you warren Pretty well myself. Um, have you Have you had a, a good week in tech? Has it um, been Um for you?
2: My Microsoft three hundred and sixty five uh, membership ended because uh, I'm no longer a student, Ugh. and I've been holding on to that for like the last six months. and Now it's done, and I'm just doing everything off Google Docs now, which is okay, but not great. The new austerity for you, yeah, Dan. That's it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'll be with you also on uh, Warren Davies. Um, it's an interesting show tonight. Um, we're really excited. It's been uh, days and hours in the making. Um, we are all, um, I guess, um, interested in uh, tracking uh, where the bug is at at the moment, um, what's going on, you know, uh, we're doing a very good job in Australia, I have to say, of um, uh, of minimising its uh, spread and incidents and, and uh, we've got a, a low uh, death count relative to other countries in the world. Um, But potentially we need to do more and for longer. So um, one of the devices that um, has helped with that around the world is uh, tracking applications uh, on our phones. Um, So the Australian government is looking to uh, introduce one in a similar vein to the the Singapore model. Um, Tonight on the show we're going to be having a chat with uh, Dr Vanessa Teague about um, the Australian version of that. Uh, Should we be um, uh, fully supportive of it? Should we be concerned about it? Um, What are the sort of implications? How is it being released? Um, Very interested to to dig into that uh, with uh, Vanessa um, in a few minutes. Um, Also, uh, I guess all of us are very interested in um, being connected at the moment, um, uh, having a voice and being heard. So uh, we're going to have a chat with um, uh, Down Syndrome Australia, um, who've um, uh, released a a new app um, uh, into uh, the App Store and into Google Play, where um, people affected by Down Syndrome can Uh, I guess, um, get better access to services um, uh, and kind of um, uh, use a host of of other services. So interesting to hear about uh, what's been going on with that a little bit later on in the show as well. Um, Before that, though, there is um, a bit of news that we wanted to um, uh, run across uh, your ears. Um, uh, One thing that did make me choke on my Wheaties uh, on the weekend was – Google and Facebook uh, are now in a position where they must pay uh, media for content reuse," um, uh, says Australia. Uh, Josh Frydenberg did a, a op-ed, um, uh, I think, in the Australian uh, a few days back, uh, talking about this. So, uh, the the history to this, in in simple terms, is that. Um, uh, obviously media has been crunched a little bit. Uh, traditional media has been, um, uh, I guess, seeing diminishing returns and I guess the, the reuse and repurposing of their content through uh, global platforms uh, like the two that we mentioned. And um, they've been having a stern word um, to uh, their friends in high places and we've been having this conversation in Australia. Uh, about this. Um, how do we, I guess, uh, protect independent journalism, um, um, support it uh, when they're in a, a, a sort of a, a very tricky situation um, in, in the current marketplace? So, um, yeah, I, I think one of the interesting takes on it is that um, given the current circumstances as well, um, it's it's even a, a little bit harder. So, um Interesting. We saw in uh, uh, in France recently. Um, they have uh, asked their um, competition, or the competition watchdog, has ordered Google to negotiate in good faith with local media firms to to um, compensate. So it could be a kind of um, uh, um, oh, there's a word here that I'm looking for. It's um, uh, um, not commission. It's it's escaped me. But um, they're, they're going to have to basically pay a share of revenue. So um, for for every you know hundred dollars that these guys make, um, they're going to have to pay a, a percentage to, to news providers. So what, what do you th- folks think mm-hmm. about that, Dan? Laura, do you think that's kind of long time coming? Is it a little bit clumsy? What what, what do you reckon?
0: I'm just curious about the mechanism. I I, I just want to know how they think t- they will they'll be able to enforce this um, compensation process. Like It makes sense if you, the person who, especially if you're a professional journalist and you've created some original content and other people are making money off it and you're making no money, it actually is quite logical that you should be seeing that revenue sharing happen. But um, um, knowing the complexity of these things like these recommendation algorithms and the marketing algorithms that go into the ad spend, um, I'm very curious how a government's going to even know how much money um google or facebook made off of that content to then demand some percentage of it go back to those original content generators Mm. um and that to me seems like the sort of um the thing upon which this whole question hinges like if you don't know how much was made off of it how can you know how much to ask for
2: and also like journalism has to be paid for by someone either that's through advertising or sponsored content or stuff like that um I like I like the model uh, like RRR you pay or you don't have to pay but people who do pay support the station and things like that um, which is a model that's like seen in like say Twitch streamers who are supported by their and like which is um, like apps like Patreon or um, mm. it, pl- uh, platforms like Patreon where people can pay to have uh, people supported but I just hope that journalistic integrity doesn't take a slant towards trying to game these algorithms you know, to pay less money, or you know, have um, Google, uh, you know, uh, search and optimize their stuff mm. just for uh, payment and stuff like that. <laughs> no.
0: Perhaps no more so than they already are. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, yeah. Well, it's it's inevitable to happen, basically.
0: Mm.
1: Mm. So, the ACCC has been uh, tasked with kind of figuring out how this code's going to work. Um, yeah, they'll be a little bit involved. Um, they want to have a, a draft code of conduct uh, released for comment by the end of uh, July and then legislated uh, not long after. So, they're looking to move pretty quickly. Um, it's interesting. Like, if you read, if you read the stuff about, um, I, I guess, how a, a lot of tech companies like to think about the, the kind of speed of innovation and staying ahead of this stuff, they've – um, they've been very good at figuring out how to repurpose this stuff and, and redistribute it and, and sort of make a business model out of it but um, I guess eventually uh, governments and, and um, markets will catch up and say hey it's um, we're not getting a, 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 um, a fair um, deal um, out of this and, and yeah interesting uh, I think it's I think it's going to be one to, one to follow. Um, uh, another thing that um, did uh, catch my eye, the um, uh, head of quantum tech at Google has resigned, Laura.
0: Yes, John Martinez, who's been there since 2014, has just resigned. And um, for people who are interested in quantum computing, this is probably going to be a little bit of a... Um a drama to follow, or something but unexpected. Um, he's he's something of a big wig in the field. Um, quantum computing is one of the hottest new domains in deep tech, um, and certainly has been touted as one of these um, sort of uh, future future tech um, options that might, that might really revolutionize what computing is capable of doing. Um, and in fact, last year at the end of 20, um, sorry, at the end of October, um, Sundar Pichai from the CEO of Google had said, we have achieved quantum supremacy, um, which is obviously very jargony, but he was basically announcing that they had achieved a task which they expected a normal computer would take 10,000 years to complete using their quantum computing. Um, but yeah, obviously there's been some friction inside the lab and Martinez resigned earlier this month saying, um, since my professional goal is for someone to build a quantum computer, I think my resignation is the best course of action for everyone. So that's, um, a little bit of a, a little bit of a mic drop moment, I think. And, um, we'll, we'll see what happens and he's, he's going to continue doing this work, um, through his academic, um, venue. He's been a professor at, um, uh, where is it, I think one of the California universities for a number of years and I think he's going to continue his research and his development there so I'm sure we'll still expect to see some interesting work coming from him but yeah definitely um obviously some trouble and some some um differences of opinion about how to approach this work from inside that lab and um yeah I suppose these things happen people part ways
1: They do. They do part ways. Um, You've also been uh, following, I guess, there's a story around intelligence in this as well. Um, Telstra using AI to to vet candidates. What's what's happening with that?
0: Yeah, so Telstra's been using a um, video AI tool called, which is... um provided from a company called HireVue and they're using it to vet um, candidates for temp jobs. So um, as everyone knows, there's a lot of people out of work right now and um, Telstra at the same time is needed to hire more people to staff their call centers and to deal with COVID related problems and support and that sort of thing. So um, they've they've had this real influx of um, people coming in and sending their CV because lots of people are out of work um, and they've used this tool to um, try and uh, scan them down very quickly. So they they went from 19,000 to 1,000 people to fill, fill the candidates for these temp jobs. Um, and it's, it's interesting. This is actually a reasonably highly adopted um, tool. This uh, video AI recruiter tool is basically trying to scan your face to observe for measures of engagement, observe for qualities that the um, company is trying to hire for. Um, and is also looking for specific words and phrases that they think are going to indicate that you know what you're talking about. Um, Obviously, this could be potentially problematic, could potentially be gamed by the candidates, could also be difficult for people who might be you know less good at things like eye contact or specific kinds of social cues. And I can imagine like just even video calling is way more awkward than talking to someone face-to-face. So I imagine that you might have some potentially poorly performing candidates simply because talking to an AI over, or rather a machine learning bot over a video call could be potentially quite uncomfortable and... Mm, yeah so so they they say that they're completely unbiased and they've removed all sources of bias in their hiring, but I'm highly- skeptical if that's the case, and I think um uh you know knowing how much these sorts of jobs are important and needed right now for to help people like keep paying their bills and keep paying their rent um I think this is a space to watch and we'll see if we can find out anything more about um, how successfully they placed people or whether people were cut out of the process who maybe shouldn't have been.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Dan, uh, have you, have you been sleeping well during this thing? And do you have any kind of tricks uh, for kind of like um, getting night's sleep? And would you be using something like Moshi?
2: Um, I, w- well, it's not for me. I sleep uh, like a log. I Straight out, but my girlfriend does not. So I would uh, certainly look into getting this app, Moshi, which is uh, just received another round of funding, $12 million to be uh, precise, by uh, ACEL uh, with Latitude Ventures and Triple Point Capital, uh, who's run by Bill Roadie, a former MTV CEO. But basically, uh, Moshi's uh, children's app for uh, mindfulness and aiding in sleep, which uh, tells children's stories uh, to help them sleep. Um, they've gone their Netflix route and uh, now producing all their own content. Uh, they've got 80 original 30-minute bedtime stories um, written and produced entirely by the company. Um, they've got uh, Steve Cleverly, who's um, a BAFTA-winning writer, uh, who authors and composes, produces each bit of content on the app. Patrick Stewart, Patrick Stewart. <laughs> I know. Oh. Yeah. Um, and... The best uh, title is Mr. Snoodle's Twilight Train, which has the chugga-chugga-choo-choo sound effect throughout the entire story. Um,
0: That does sound soothing.
2: The only thing that they need is Harry McClary from Donaldson's Dairy, which is a children's book that I liked when I was a kid. If they had that, I'd get it for sure. (laughs) <laughs> um, I feel like there's a bunch of people out there now just like queuing up the first 80 um, mm. for daylight use as well just to kind of get some kind of um, daytime napping as well it's, uh, mm. it's, it's very helpful
0: don't discount day sleeping Yeah, it's the best <laughs>
2: Melbourne's own triple R
1: we have a thing going on uh, we need to track the thing going on um, uh, is the current thinking around that and um, there is a bit to nut out um, uh, obviously we have um a strategy that seems to be working where we're um, we're distancing um, where're potentially moving to a new phase where we want to um, uh, I guess isolate the cases track down the contacts and and really kind of um, squash it um, if we can Um one of the ways that we can do that is with uh phone technology so um we're looking at potentially an uh, an app for australia um, that allows us to uh, understand when we've been in proximity to people um with um with covid19 and uh i guess we have a bit to talk talk about so we're now uh, joined on the phone by uh, vanessa teague um, who is uh, an expert in this space and um vanessa um, thank you very much for taking the time to to join us on bite into it tonight hello um, so I guess one of the, uh, one of the reasons we came across it was, um, it went to, uh, sort of media pretty quickly. And, um, I think the government is in this kind of, um, uh, action man setting where, um, they need to be taking decisions and making decisions and getting things out there and getting things done. Um, and everyone had a lot of questions. Um, so now, um, in simple terms, they've had to kind of do a fair bit of explaining to, to get some, Um, simple questions uh, asked and answered. What what were some of the first things that came to mind for you? What what was your first response to this?
3: Well, the first thing is that we need some explanation of what it's going to be. Because what you just said is absolutely right. They've been in full media mode. We've been told how wonderful it is and how privacy-preserving it is and everything, but we haven't actually been told what it is. Mm. There's no detail about the proposal. There's a rough idea that it's going to be somewhat inspired by Singapore's Trace Together app, mm-hmm. but we don't know how similar it's going to be, mm. and we don't know what the options are going to be, and we don't know who's going to hold the database, and we don't really know anything.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something out of uh, you know, a, a TV show, kind of like uh, you know Ut- Utopia or, or something like that. Yes. Yeah.
3: Exactly. So my concern is that people are being pressured into it before we have any information about what it is. And my main set of questions have been to try to say, please give us the source code and the other documentation and some details about how it's going to work. Because there were Decisions to be made at two levels here. One is, what's the right thing that Australia should be doing? How should Australia's app be designed? And I don't think trace Together is the right way to go, actually. I think there are much better designs that we could be adopting instead. And then the second question is, if you don't get a choice, and if it's the government's trace Together app or nothing, what should you as an individual choose? And we don't know the option to that either, because we haven't really seen what it's going to be.
0: Um, and as I understand it, Vanessa, there's some question about whether this will be a um, voluntary install or people might actually be forced into doing it. Um, I don't know if you saw this piece, but just a couple of days ago, um, Deputy Chief Medical Officer Paul Kelly said that, They may need to make it compulsory, um, which is in direct opposition to what Scott Marson had been saying a couple of days earlier. So there seems to be some wires crossed. And I don't know if you have any more information on whether it will go the voluntary or the compulsory option.
3: I think that's a really good question, which has had two different, at least two different inconsistent answers. So remember, that My Health Record scheme was voluntary and opt-in, and then not enough people opted in, and then they just decided to opt everybody in. Still opt out, but you can obviously see the potential here to see how many people opt in to the contact tracing app, and then um, on the basis of that decision, make up their minds about whether it's going to be compulsory or not. Now, it's worth saying there's, it's not really clear what compulsory means in this context. And actually, it's not really clear what voluntary means either. So is it going to be like, voluntary, like, no, you really don't have to do it? Or is it going to be voluntary, like, you don't have to do it unless you want to go back to work or unless you want to collect Centrelink benefits? Or we haven't had any clarity even from the people saying that it's going to be voluntary. Also, when we talk about an app being compulsory, you all know perfectly well that you can just turn your Bluetooth off, right? So if it were to be made compulsory, what would compulsory mean exactly? Would it mean you had to have the app installed? Would it mean you had to have the app installed and not disabled? Would it mean you had to have the app installed and have Bluetooth on? Would it mean you had to have it on all the time? Or you just had to have it on when you were out in public? Would you have to have it on in your home? You know, the... Mm. the, there are a lot of things that are being presented here as binary options that, in fact, have a lot of different possibilities along the scale.
0: And how would you test for any of those options? How would you even know if someone's gone out and has the app on but Bluetooth disabled, for instance?
3: Right. This is a very good question.
0: And, and um, yeah, if the government says they're not going to be capturing data off the phones, then it seems that the answer would be that they shouldn't be able to know that and therefore wouldn't be able to validate it either way.
3: So these are exactly the kind of questions we need to ask, which is exactly why we really need the source code for the app. Because you can certainly imagine a design for an app that would be constantly pinging or constantly reporting on whether or not it was live. And I don't think that's acceptable. But without seeing the source code for the app, we don't really know... What the options that are being considered are.
0: So. so I understand they have made a commitment to make the source code available, um, but they haven't set a timeline. I believe so. Um, they said a couple of weeks before the app will be available, the source code will be coming out. Is that is that what you understand as well, or is that still like up for grabs?
3: Again, we've had the same question asked and we've had multiple different inconsistent answers. So at one point from Stuart Robert, we got a very, very firm commitment that the source code was going to be open. And I thought that was really good because I think that's a critically important part of developing public trust. If you don't know what it's doing, then I really don't think it's appropriate for people to be pressured into downloading it. And there's no reason to keep secret from us exactly what it's doing. And in fact, there are really good reasons for making the source code open on the assumption that it's probably been put together pretty fast. I'm sure they're doing their best, but security problems happen. And if there's a big community of people looking carefully at it and letting the authorities know if there's a problem, then we're a lot less likely to let errors and vulnerabilities go that we don't know about.
1: I had a um,
3: I really Sorry,
1: go On I, I had an interesting uh, uh, experience on Twitter where um, somebody jumped in and said can everybody just calm down and can we have a, a think about this Um potentially there's a really good benefit to having it and maybe we can address some of these things. And I looked, I kind of blinked and I looked at it and I was like, it wasn't a bot. Um, And I was like, my first thing was, oh, you obviously made this. So, you know, and I had those thoughts. And then I thought, maybe there is something in this. Our first instinct is to kind of, um, you know, tear strips off it. And these are all valid strips to tear off it. Um, what, what, what's the, what's the other side to, 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 what we're looking at here? Maybe it is being clumsily implemented and maybe it would work. And maybe the lesser of the evils is, um, you know, we've got some, um, discomfort around privacy and, and so forth to, to play sort of devil's advocate. How would you kind of argue the other side? What's the, the benefit to a fast implementation in kind of crazy circumstances?
3: Well. <laughs> I still think that there are better ways of doing it that would be just as fast. So, Mm. in particular, you probably saw that Google and Apple announced a couple of weeks ago a very efficient, easy to use. Uh, method that's going to support apps that do a decentralised job of contact tracing. Mm. And what that means is that it would support a much more privacy-preserving protocol than TraceTogether. So rather than what TraceTogether does, which is centralise your contact information with an authority Mm. when you test positive, the Google Apple API would support a whole family of open source apps that are already being developed that would give you the opportunity to check on your own phone whether or not you had been in contact with a person who had tested positive without that information being centralised through a government authority. Mm. So rather than automating a process where you go in and tell a public health official everybody you've been in contact with if you test positive to the virus. Instead, this basically automates the process where if you test positive, you directly tell people that you were nearby. And there are a lot of uh, open source projects working very hard and doing a good job of this. There's a project called COVID Watch out of Australia. There's a big European project called DP3T. All of these apps are either in beta or on the way now. If we did that instead, then I think there'd be a lot better argument in support of why we should be doing this.
0: Yeah, it, it's worth um, mentioning that this, this app is not even to totally replace contact tracing and it certainly doesn't um, solve all the problems of stopping the spread. What it does is help support human memory. So when you're being asked how many people have you been near and have you been in contact with anyone who might have been um, infected or who, you know, like when you're when you're being asked if, after you've been diagnosed, um, who you've been in, in close contact with. Um, it's a memory support. And particularly once we're past being in lockdown and we're back out near people again, it might support that. But it certainly doesn't um, solve it entirely. And you have to think about how many people will actually install the app Um, in order for it to be a useful tool in the first place, um, so can you can you talk a little bit, Vanessa, about like how that that adoption of the app actually makes a difference to whether or not it's at all useful? Like, I think that's an important point that people may not quite understand. Yeah, well, I mean, very
3: roughly, the point is, if you're the context tracing is using the app is only useful if both you and the person you're trying to trace are using the app. So if you test positive and you were not using the app, then the app doesn't help you trace any of your contacts. If you test positive and uh, and you're trying to trace someone who was not using the app, then that's not useful either. So the best we can hope for, if X percent of people download the app, is that we'll trace roughly X squared contacts. Right, So, in other words, if half of the people download the app, then we can probably use the app to trace about a quarter of our contacts, right? Because half the people who test positive will have the app, and of them, we'll be, be able to reach half of the people that they were in contact with. So, I think that's why the uh, assumption is that it needs a very high rate of adoption in order to be effective.
0: So do you know where they came up with this 40% of adoption number? Like, is that, I have no idea.
3: Yeah, that, I think somebody just... Uh, yeah,
0: somebody that, just that was like, my sense yeah. as well. <laughs> um, so, mm, please, what, Warren.
3: What,
1: what would be the... What would be the um, if you could get two things, um, sort of uh, comfort on a couple of things um, in the next couple of weeks to kind of go, I'm not too happy about it and it sucks more than a U2 album on my phone that I didn't ask for, but let's go ahead. What, what would be the two things that you could really um, demand, Vanessa?
3: OK, two best things for the nation to do are, number one, open source, the soft, open source the software so that we can all look at what it's actually doing, complete, downloadable, compilable versions of the thing that we're being asked to run on our phone. Second thing the nation could do is adopt a privacy-preserving, decentralised protocol based on the new Apple Google APIs, not something based on trace together that centralises the information with government. So that would be my first two
1: yeah it doesn't it doesn't seem it seems like we we could get that right and even if we have to kind of push it back a couple of weeks, it, it seems like a, a good compromise.
0: Yeah, like this is all evolving very fast. The Google the Google Apple tool API was only released like as we had already started working on the trace together tool. So Exactly.
3: And unfortunately I think there's a bit of a sunk cost fallacy. So I think mm-hmm. the trace together thing was a really good thing at the time they did it. The engineers did an awesome job pulling that together. It's astonishing what they got done in a short period of time. But there are much better options now that have emerged within the last few weeks. It's not too late for Australia to flip over to one of those better options. And we might even get higher adoption if we guarantee better privacy, so it might be better
1: all around. If you're interested in following this along, uh, if you do have the Twitters, you can uh, follow Vanessa at, uh, at VTEG, A-U-S. Um, uh, we might just kind of mention her and get that out there. Um, CEO of Thinking Cybersecurity and, uh, I guess, um, hound on the path of this government, uh, trying to make sure they do a good job. So, Vanessa, thanks very much for, for having a chat to us about that.
4: Good talking to you. It is.
1: Independently yours. Triple R.
3: 102.7.
1: Wednesday night. Hope you're snug and well. Um, We are going to have a chat now about an interesting project uh, by uh, Down Syndrome Australia. Um, It's always interesting when um, you have an opportunity to design a a very um, specific, uh, interesting experience with um, deep consultation of of the team involved. And... um, very interested to have a chat about this. We're now joined uh, by phone um, by Carly Preston, who's the National uh, Project Manager uh, for Down Syndrome Australia, uh, working on this project. Carly, thanks for uh, making time tonight. Oh,
4: thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be with you and talking about this work.
1: So uh, I'd like to, uh, I guess, almost start at the start. Um, where was the, the sort of genesis of, um, of, of this app and um, what were its kind of kind of, I guess, early days like?
4: Yeah, so Down Syndrome Australia received funding through the NDIA and the information linkages and capacity building of part of the scheme to develop a community inclusion toolkit and that uh, was our first piece of work Um, and then we were successfully getting some more funding to develop the community inclusion toolkit which is really a collection of resources to help support inclusion for people with Down syndrome across Education, employment, health, and community and sporting groups. So, the second uh, funding grant was to support the inclusion toolkit being converted into an app format. So, we went back to the start really and thought, well, we don't just want to make these tools and resources available in an app that, you know, we can, they're available and people know about them anyway. What we want to do is make this, um, you know, personalise this experience and, uh, so we decided to kind of consult with people with Down syndrome about this, and we involved uh, them you know, at every stage across the way. We have a national advisory group that, that help us with all our project work, and we sort of really decided that we wanted to share people's experiences of inclusion in a very personal way, so a question-and-answer style uh, app that um, addresses some of the common questions around inclusion in employment, in education, in and community groups, and in health, and what some of the barriers are, and just some you know, there's no better way of knowing how you can address a problem than hearing directly from the person that it's affecting. So, um, and we then set across the course to work with partners um, to develop this idea a technology partner and a creative partner Um, and then we went about a very organic journey of capturing people with Down syndrome answering and talking to us about you know their life experience and inclusion across those areas and filming that and then kind of creating the app. It was very important to us to also have the ability for it to be an ongoing piece of work so people now still have the ability or will have the ability moving forward to submit their own story, their own question, their own answer their own, um, you know, idea about what can help inclusion in the
1: community. So it sounds like you had a very um, sort of broad um, goal, like how can we explore ideas around inclusion and and sort of um, uh, representing um, uh, the community uh, in a very specific way. how did it kind of sharpen from there? Like what was the process to kind of go, this is, this is the way we want to go about it and um, this is kind of the, the sort of co-design ambition of people in the community who wanted to get this out of the app? What, what, how did you kind of like um, move towards that, that broader goal of um, working on inclusion?
4: Yeah, so we have a Down syndrome advisory group. So it's a collection of people um, that, from each state and territory with Down syndrome that meet monthly and talk with us about all our policy and our projects and our advocacy work. And, uh, you know, so whenever we get some funding to do a piece of work, they're our first point of call to hear directly from them what what will make a difference and what's important. And there are really um, you know, a great bunch of people, great bunch of self advocates that really know, um, you know, have a great understanding of, of our work and how we can progress things and get great traction and reach and impact in the community to really tell a story. So I guess the idea really came um, and was supported by that group and then really grew from there. And, um, you know, the people with Down syndrome that we filmed for the app and that have been involved at every step of the way have really just, just, um, they've just been incredibly insightful um, into, you know, the idea of inclusion, not particularly a complex one. It's sometimes just about breaking it down into very simple, um, you Mm. know, ways community can support people to be involved
0: Mm. it reminds me a little bit of that show on abc you can't ask that um which is it's funny i think they do the job of of just asking questions we all want to ask but feel a little bit uncomfortable or shy or like maybe we shouldn't um i'm curious was that was that an inspiration for this work
4: yeah, absolutely, um, yeah, certainly that that style of, um, you know, approach, hearing people from directly about their experiences, definitely, and, and that storytelling um, approach is really, you know, essential for us to get out, we see that as a very powerful way to convey, you know, the simple messages of inclusion, um, so yeah, certainly inspiration from that, um, and um, uh, and, you know, there are some other, uh, uh, there's some other pieces of work that are similar um, that also kind of use this storytelling approach to really um, share the message of inclusion.
1: What were some of the um, first kind of like really um, uh, interesting things that you learned working on this, say, compared to another project that you've worked on? Um, did you have many of those kind of aha moments? Like, um, I just can't wait to tell everybody about this. This was, um, this was really poignant or significant.
4: Um, My whole working life has really been in this kind of um, working with people around sharing a message health promotion whether it's in health or in disability so I guess the messages for me are ones that I've known the whole way uh, you know through my life and a reason why I work in this field is because I'm passionate about people's rights. Um, I guess the um, but I, I hope people do get that from the app. I do. I hope they do get the aha moment of it doesn't need to be, um, you know, overly complicated. It can be the simple steps that you take. And certainly the other side of our work is we are very, we're approached very often from organisations or from sporting groups or clubs that have, uh, you know, want to support inclusion but don't quite know how to go about it. Teachers that have a child... Uh, you know in their mainstream class that has Down syndrome but want to give the best opportunity to that child so it's we're approached by people like that all the time to you know to give them advice and to share with them um, and to be able to direct them to something like the app and say well here here are people with Down syndrome telling you for themselves what will make a difference, what some of the challenges have been for them and how Um, you know, the simple things people can do to to make a difference. Um, I guess the key thing I I just always come back to is it's not some... You know, community inclusion is not some sort of massively hard thing to achieve. It's just about values and people being, you know, um, just being kind and being caring and being inclusive. And it doesn't, it's not about, um, you know, kind of anything more complicated than that, really. Sometimes there are some simple adjustments that can be made that, um, you know, can really help a person to... To be included, um, some modifications or some adjustments, or some technology, or that type of thing. But um, you know, it's it, it there, there is lots lots of ways to support inclusion. But it, it really isn't um, an overly complicated idea of people just being kind of kind and extending, um, you know, a hand of of friendship and inclusion.
1: I'd kind of be interested to put you on the spot. This is not, not your necessarily your area at all, but you, you've you kind of got an interesting insight into how people can um, become a part of a, a wider community if um, there's been some challenges around that. Is there any advice you could give all of us out there who are kind of like um, thinking about, geez, I'm not in my usual routine and I'm not seeing the usual faces. Is there any kind of simple things that you can kind of say, this is really powerful around inclusion? Um
4: would say you know take a look at the app download the app have a look at what people tell you from their own experience about around connecting with other people and how important having a job is have it, you know one of the one of the questions in the app is you know what's the, your favorite thing about having a job and there are most people's answer is having money you know and it because it supports having a life of independence if you have your own money and you're not reliant on, uh, on you know on um, your family or, or welfare to get an income so you know that's the same answer you would find from most people in the world about why why is it important about having a job well money is is a key thing there so you know i would encourage people to you know download the app have a look hear from people directly about what ways that inclusion can be supported um and to you know have a some of the questions uh, you know there is um some questions that are confronting, I guess, around the challenges in certain things like education and bullying and those type of things. And I think hearing people's personal response to those can be really powerful. So the NDIA, the NDIS, um, you know, over the last few years has been a massive social reform in disability, and it has enabled um, people to have more Access to the community than they've ever had before um, and so you know I would just say to, to people out there you know don't be afraid to ask a, you know to extend a hand ask a question be kind and um, you know and inclusion is, is just powerful really
1: probably um good advice for all of us out there like just um Absolutely. ask ask a question mm-hmm. check up on people um maybe people that you haven't spoken to in a little while just reach out and say hello and um yeah being nice i think um there's a bit of stress out there a bit of concern um you know people people aren't as resourced as they uh, as they have been so um pretty yeah. uni- pretty universal learnings there i guess um,
0: Absolutely. just quickly if people want to download the app and take a look at it kylie what do they look for and which stores can they find it on
4: so, both Google Play and in the Apple Store, and um, our it's it's the app's called Ask About Down Syndrome. Um, we went through a, a long process with our Down Syndrome Advisory Group, and and they came up with a range of answers, and then we took a vote on which one they thought most powerfully represented what the app does. So, it simply is called Ask About Down Syndrome, which I think is you know a, an invitation to the community to to ask you know to to ask what can. How can we support inclusion? How can What are the simple things we can do um, to give people the same opportunity and the opportunity they deserve and they, they have the right to um, and that we should all you know, have access to the community and employment and education and health services at the same level as, as
3: everybody else.
1: It's great. I'm going to give it a go and uh, I'm going to um, ask some questions. So i um, looking forward to, to giving it a, a go. And um, congrats. Well done on, on the launch and the, uh, and the thinking behind this.
0: Thank you so much. Triple R on FM Digital, online and via the app.
2: Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot.
1: Um, a couple of fun things. Um, I did grow up um, with a bit of Muppets and a bit of Fraggle Rock. Um, really excited to see that... Um, their new series um, is coming out and because it was interrupted um, uh, by uh, by the bug that's going on at the moment, um, very excited to see that the creative team behind it just went, you know what, we're going to do this anyway um, and they shot it on their phones instead um so that's a a great response to um some of the challenges that um that were being thrown up um so fraggle rock rock on uh, is all shot on iphone 11 uh from the homes of the production team and um artists from all over the states and then, then they're kind of uh zipping it into um uh, sort of um, production and um and sort of going from there so It's coming out on uh, on Apple TV, but I don't know. Are you you guys old enough to
2: remember Fraggle Rock?
0: We were just discussing that off air. Yeah, (laughs)
2: um, I am a big fan of Jim Henson, but I never. I think I was a little bit late to the party. Mm. Uh, to, to get into Fraggle Rock.
0: I'm with you, Warren. I love it. It was so sweet. We were just talking about the golden age of puppetry, like Dark Crystal and, um, you know, all of the Bowie things. and Labyrinth. Bowie and Labyrinth. Mm. Oh, so good.
1: Mm. It's kind of like uh, computer tech wasn't quite there yet with animation and so forth, so people wanted to do sort of like really fun, funky, weird stuff that... Um, you know, felt kind
2: of lifelike, and,
1: it yeah. would, and puppets was where and, it was at.
2: And it always seemed to have, like, this dark edge, like the never-ending story and stuff like that. All the mm. pu- They looked creepy, yeah. and they had that, uh, yeah, really dark world thing going on.
0: Oh, yeah, they're, like, not happy stories. It's like, it's like, you know, animes that aren't, you know, like they look cutesy, but then they have this really deep, really dark kind of undercurrent. Yeah. Um, I think that's possible with things that are not, you know, real-life photography.
1: Maybe we'll get some stuff coming out of that. During this wonderfully rich creative period Um, Just based on oil prices I was just thinking about the oil crisis in the 70s And Thatcherism and Reaganism And all of these kind of puppet shows Were against this kind of like canvas of austerity So maybe we're going to have a rich
2: reimagining of puppetry Sounds like the, sounds like the ticket. I'm here for it. There's a couple of quick bits of space news as well. What's going there? Um, 21 Borisov is like a time capsule from a part of the uh, universe that humans will never get to see. Wow. Um, the Hubble telescope has turned its attention to this uh, intergalactic visitor to our neighbourhood, intergalactic neighbourhood. Um, uh, it's looking at... Uh, it's only the uh, second interstellar object ever detected, um, the first one being... Uh, mau, mau. It's hard to say. It's I a remember lot of that one. a yeah. lot of vowels. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they're looking at uh, the comet and its gas uh, chemical trail. What's Interstellar? I, I've seen the movie,
1: but remind me um, from a different different system altogether.
0: Different solar system, different, so outside yeah. the star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing. Another piece of news is that SpaceX and NASA have set a date in May um, to send humans for the ultimate social distancing off of the planet. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm proud of that. Um, they, are, they will be transporting astronauts up to the International Space Station, and this will be the first time SpaceX has officially transported the live cargo of humans. So that will be an interesting and exciting first step for them, um, set for May 27th of this year.
1: I'm kind of imagining the um, the kind of like whooping it up um, at mission control, which usually goes on with like all these rockets kind of doing fancy things, like very sensitive cargo this time around. It's probably going to be a lot more serious kind of mood.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, it's certainly going to be a big test of um, their robustness and capabilities and obviously it would be very bad PR, very bad optics for them if it went badly. Mm. But it won't. And I'm not going to jinx them. <laughs> I'm, I'm knocking on wood. It's going to be great.
1: Uh, thank you very much to uh, our guests uh, Vanessa and Carly for joining us on Bite Into It tonight. Um, thank you to our silent producer Dan and Elizabeth McCarthy, um, Laura. Dan, thanks very much. Hope you had fun. Thanks, Warren. It was great. Anthony
0: Carew. Hi, this is Vanessa Toholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.